0: Almighty God, thank you for this day that you have made and thank you for bringing each one of us into this new day as well and giving us life. And Lord God, thank you for giving us this time and place in which we can meet together in peace and freedom. And Lord, to have fellowship together, to praise you in, in song and in word. And Lord, to read your holy word, Lord, that we may be instructed. And Lord God, thank you for giving us Jesus Christ, our Saviour, through whom we may have eternal life. And thank you, Lord God, for giving us your written word, that we may read of Jesus, read of what he had to say and what he did in these ministry. Thank you, Lord God. Help me now, Lord, just to bring this word to the congregation. Help the congregation to hear it, Lord, I pray, that we may all be pleasing to you, Lord God, and that we may be all enriched by what you have to bring to us today. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. It says uh, in the church bulletin that uh, I'm preaching today to the remnant. And it's great that uh, God always leaves a remnant, but just looking around at the yeah, fairly good turn up here, I would say perhaps the people at the camp are the remnant. Um, but anyway, it's good to be here and uh, to still go on with our, our church service and hear the word of God. We just heard two... Uh, uh, parts of the Word of God, one from uh, Deuteronomy, one from the uh, Gospel of Luke, both sort of uh, uh, about a little bit over a thousand years apart in terms of the, uh, the time they were uh, written and talked about, and but nonetheless very much linked together, and I think um, very uh, important for us to, to note that link just want to say that the the good samaritan used to be probably the most well known um of uh things from the bible the most well known story or parable of jesus i say used to because i think that's probably changed quite considerably i used to teach a uh, a class for healthcare workers in uh, in the law as apl- uh, as applied to healthcare and uh one of the important areas of um uh, uh that we looked at was the whole question of negligence and in negligence, you have to talk about a concept called the duty of care. That is the duty that we all owe to other people that we come in contact with. And um, uh, I always used to to help illustrate this uh, talk, always used to bring up the Good Samaritan. And you could tell by the look on people's faces that they immediately knew what you were talking about. I've just noticed over the last 10 years or so, that uh, that's not the case anymore. You get a lot of blank stares now when you mention the Good Samaritan people just don't know the story, unfortunately. Uh, that's partly because obviously we have a lot of people now coming to Australia who are from uh, non-Christianised uh, countries. They've never even come in contact with the Gospel. And we also have a whole generation of people uh, whose parents are from my generation who've never been uh, taught any Bible stories, uh, let alone the Gospel of Jesus Christ. So I now see, when I mention the Good Samaritan, a lot of blank faces, which is very a great pity, I think, because I think in some ways the Good Samaritan is one of the most important stories. It's a simple little story, and it's pretty short, um, and not much, there's not much around it that sort of explains it all. It just, it's just Jesus states it, and it's there for you to look at. But actually, I think it's very, very important. We talk about the Good Samaritan. I've um, titled this, Why Was the Samaritan Good?, um, and we need to say from the start that when we say good here, we're talking about good uh a relative sense, that is as good as a man can be. Uh, I used to have a fellow I work with who every day would come up and say, how are you going, as Australians tend to do, um, and you, you give your reply, although most people don't usually want to hear the reply, they just walk on. But this fellow used to always wait for me and I'd say, oh, good, and he'd say, uh-uh, you're actually well, only God is good. Now he's quite right, of course, but after a while this started to get on my nerves and I used to... See him coming, our duck into a into a room and wait till he got, went by. But uh, of course, the word "good" in the English language comes from Old English, meaning to be like God or godly. That's where the word comes from. So when we say God, it's actually a nice idea, isn't it? We're talking about trying to be godly. We're trying to be like God. That's when a person is good. Um, the parable of the good Samaritan was. Um, so famous, I think, that it become even part of the English language uh, amongst uh, believers and non-believers alike. And it was certainly uh, given to uh, the names of organisations and uh, uh, hospitals and other things like that. It was also passed into legal usage. There are, uh, the Good Samaritan is, is mentioned as a, as a concept and it's also in, in some American um, legislation that's actually called the Good Samaritan Act. So it's a, a thing that has uh, really, really come part of our language. And it's all about this idea of duty of care to other people. Well, the story of the Good Samaritan, we've just heard from uh, Luke, in chapter 10 of Luke, tells the story of a man travelling down to Jerusalem and he was attacked by robbers and left for dead. A priest and a Levite, uh, they ignored the injured man and walked on uh, and yet the Samaritan coming along, he went and helped him. In fact, he not only helped him, he actually went out of his way to help him. He had to go there and make a decision to go do this, Did uh, helped him but also took him to an inn, uh, paid the man to look after him and also uh, promised that he would come back and follow up on it. So this is quite, quite something that this man did. And he did this actually at some personal expense as well. Uh, and he also felt committed to the man. That's that idea that if you do save someone, then you have a responsibility for them. But uh, he actually felt committed to this man because he did he did want to come back and see how he got on and help him further if, if necessary. The significance of that parable is probably lost on us today uh, because we think, oh, well, probably a lot of us think, what's a Samaritan anyway? What's that actually mean? Um, and why was it such a big deal that he did this and uh, the others didn't? Well to the audience of the day that Jesus was speaking to, they knew exactly what uh Jesus was, was getting at there. And particularly the young well the man, the so called um uh uh teacher of the law who asked the question in the first place, he uh would have very much known what the the issue was here. Uh remember just that the priest and the Levite that come along and went by the uh the the, the, the injured man were very highly regarded and most most respected people in the community of the day. In fact, that hasn't changed much. Their their um, uh, modern day equivalents would be rabbis in the Jewish community now. And the, in the Jewish community, rabbis are held in the highest regard, more than anyone else. That's the uh, that anyone can uh, um, aspire to be a rabbi is like you know that's that's the top sort of job that you would try and do. Uh, and it was much the same then when, when priests and Levites was, were equally held in high esteem. And uh, they served God in the temple. In fact, the priests even made sacrifices for people for, um, uh, for their sins. Uh, they also uh, adjudicated upon the law as well and uh, made decisions based on the law of Moses hence you'll find uh here in this uh, the good samaritan he's referred to uh as an expert in the law and other places in the bible uh similar people uh are called uh lawyers they even use the word lawyers now when we think of lawyers we we think of the solicitor down the road who does your wills and and all that sort of thing but the lawyer in those days was really what these days we'd call a theologian probably so there was a mix, there was no distinction between uh, uh uh, the study of God, theology, and uh, the law—they're both seen as the same thing. Also, these two uh, men, the, the Levite and the uh, priest who walked by, were also ethnically kin to the man who was injured. So they were um, should have been had some sort of um, affiliation with him, at least in their you know in the sense of they would see him as a, a similar sort of person. Uh, they were so that they came from uh, Judea uh, or Judah, who were, they were um, had fairly uh, fairly genetically unmixed. Uh, they were fairly genetically unmixed descendants of Abraham, but the Samaritan, however, he was seen as a, a community uh, quite apart from the Jews. Although, in a certain sense, uh, descending from Abraham, a lot of them were. Uh, they were despised by the Jews because they had uh corrupted their belief in the uh uh in the one god uh and their practices of worship they'd also uh developed a genetic impurity as well they had uh admixed with uh other pagan people around them and therefore were no longer uh, as purely um uh descendant from abraham as the uh the jews saw themselves and of course, uh, the, the Jewish people were a fairly genetically homogenous bunch of people. They were, uh, were counted a Jew as a person who's counted as being born of a Jewish mother. So therefore, through that, uh, going back through the mothers, it's, um, it's easy to trace the way back in a fairly certain way that you come from certain, uh, uh, an ancestral background and people, those Jews would trace their, their ancestry back to Abraham and be, of course, be very proud of it. But you know, these two groups grew to dislike each other intently. They had, um, went, went both ways, by the way. And that was an attitude that lasted for hundreds of years and, and often erupted into physical violence. Uh, groups of one, uh, of one side would wait, lay in wait on the road and jump on a, a person of the other side and beat them up and, and run off. Uh, even a bunch of Samaritans once uh, invaded the uh, the temple in Jerusalem and, and tossed all the furniture around and threw rubbish all over the place and ran off, and that sort of thing was going on all the time. Uh, so there was a great antipathy between the two the two bunches of people. It's rather interesting that this often happens, doesn't it, when you have something... That is akin to when there's a, a dispute within a family, so to speak, because these people were, after all, historically of the same family. And whenever you get sort of disputes in a the family, they often get a lot more vicious than between strangers. Hence, you see the, the the dreadful results of civil wars, for instance, where there's a lot more um uh uh, uh vicious behaviour uh, being perpetrated. So you see that there. This this thing went on for hundreds of years, uh, and so um. It was actually the enemy, uh, Jesus points out the enemy, uh, that went and helped the man who was injured, not the so-called friends. Uh, and how, how is this uh, judged? Well, it was judged by this man's actions. We don't know anything about what he thought or how he felt, but we know by his actions that he, Jesus, counted him as the real neighbour. Well, who are these Samaritans that brought such con- contempt for the Jews? We have to remember that the uh, the people of Israel were originally set up in a what's called a theocracy, where, in other words, they 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 see as their king uh, God as their king, and they had judges to make decisions for them, uh, make rulings for things. But they got dissatisfied with that and asked that God would give them a king, just like everyone else had. In fact, that's the words they said: "Everyone else has a king; we should have one too." Uh, God, of course. Um, uh, counselled against that, but they clamoured for a king. So he gave them a king called Saul. Now this new regime that was inaugur- inaugurated uh, only lasted for three, uh, three sort of rules. There was Saul first, then followed by David, and then David's son Solomon. But after Solomon, there were disputes after disputes, and finally the kingdom of Israel split into two kingdoms, so you had in the north, the border went roughly from. If you can picture a map of um, of the Holy Land, the the border went roughly from the top of the Dead Sea across to the Mediterranean, and Jerusalem, which was the capital of uh, Judah, was just inside the border uh, on the Judah side, whereas the um, the uh, northern side, their capital was a town called Samaria. Uh, hence the the word they get got to be known as Samaritans because their capital was Samaria. Uh, they are the northern kingdom. They, they continued to keep the name uh, Israel. They kept the name the kingdom of Israel, uh, whereas the southern one was called Judah. Uh, so we have these two, two, two kingdoms now and two uh, capitals, Samaria and, and Jerusalem. And in t- terms of the tribal makeup of these two kingdoms, Judah again was pretty much more homogeneous that is it had it was very much more of one tribe it also had uh, that is the tribe of Judah uh, it also had uh, a tribe of Benjamin and the tribe of Simeon which it tend to uh, they tended to assimilate in with Judah and they almost disappeared uh, but in Samaria they had all the other tribes of uh, Israel the other ten tribes of Israel. Strictly speaking, eight tribes and two half-tribes, so ten tribes. Uh, this um, also, the southern kingdom had a slightly, uh, over a period of time, had a slightly greater number of righteous kings and prophets, only slightly, uh, and than Samaria. So overall it gave them a little bit of an edge in holding more tightly to the law and the worship of their god. The northern kingdom, though, began to flirt with the ways of life of the surrounding pagan nations. They took on many of their practices and beliefs and they even started to intermarry uh, with the surrounding pagan nations. The flirtation, you know, is a great trap for us all. Uh, It's Flirtation, of course, in any part of life is uh, exciting and that's probably why we tend to do it. Uh, But flirtation is a very dangerous area because you get to a point where you don't want to come back and you go on to commit uh, serious errors. And that's what these people did. They started to actually completely forget about the God who gave them this land and the God who promised them great things and took up uh, a mixed belief, uh, their own uh, basic uh, system of belief that took in all the, the pagan ideas around them as well. We're talking, when we talk about pagans these days, we have a, you can almost have a benign sort of view of them, uh, of, uh, you know, the, the pagan culture that we live in here now in Australia. Uh, perhaps their gods are sport or having fun, sort of a bit benign, but we're talking about pagans here who used to sacrifice children to their god. So it wasn't so benign. Uh, but they, they, they took up some of these ideas and, and of course married. And often when you, you marry someone from outside your belief system, um, it's very hard to get them to give up their old belief system, uh, and they want to bring it along. So we started to see in Israel, king of Israel, people there setting up uh, idols to these pagan gods. Even though they might nominally say, "Oh, and I, I follow the God of of uh, Abraham," uh, they actually had in their house they would have idols for their wife or husband uh, that were pagan idols. God, after many over many years, gave them chastisement for this behavior and gave them opportunity to, to repent, but they didn't. And finally God brought a severe punishment and judgment against them. And it was in the form of the Assyrian army uh, who came and overwhelmed the city of Samar- Samaria uh, and captured many Samaritans. The Assyrian, Assyrian army, they actually before that they had um, many battles against other people, the Syrians uh, and, and many others, uh, but were able to beat them off. The Assyrian army, though, was probably one of the uh, top, probably the top army at the time in that world. In that world. Uh, they were very fearsome people as well. If you woke up one morning come out of your house and looked up on the hill and saw the Assyrian army arrayed uh, across the horizon, you would really, really uh, tremble. You'd probably want to run away because these people were ruthless. Uh, they were very good fighters they didn't mind, um, uh, dying in battle. In fact, that was seen to be a good thing for them. Uh, and they persevered until they won. Uh, and they weren't very nice to the people who they captured. They would do terrible things to them. So these Assyrians were, uh, were come upon. In fact, it's the Bible tells us that God, God actually allowed the Assyrian army to, to take over these the Samaria as a punishment, uh, as a judgment. And these Samaritans were sent away into slavery in many foreign lands. The same thing, though, the, the, the people in Judah were probably thinking, "Oh yes, well, we can." Uh, doesn't surprise me, you know, that uh, that uh, God has done this because these these people, in, the Samaritans, are really they really went off the off the rails. They they really deserved it. But you know, 135 years later, the same thing, exactly same thing happened to the people of Judah as well. In, in that punishment was and, and judgment was brought against them at the hands of the Babylonians, who did the same thing to them and scattered them into foreign lands as well. When the people of Judah returned from captivity, later on, they sought to re-establish Jerusalem. It was broken down. They actually had to physically build up the walls. They had to restore the temple, and then they restored the um, uh, re- restored worship in the temple and the old. Priestly system of of, um, of uh, sacrifice and so on, but the Samaritans who trickled back into their homeland as well, and were by now very very diluted in terms of their genetic makeup, but also in the terms of their belief systems. They were very they very much took on beliefs of the people around them, and even the beliefs of the people who who taken them captive and made them slaves. They'd come back, but they sort of they started to have a little bit of memory there of. The one true God and what they, how they used to worship. So they set up their own temple in, in, um, uh, in competition with the temple in Jerusalem. They set up their, set up a temple in Mount Gerizim, which is just a little bit south of um, their new uh, capital city was, which was Shechem. Uh, they didn't go back to Samaria; it was broken down. But uh, they took a new capital city, Shechem, and just south of that, they set up a new, uh, a new temple. Now, just to add insult to injury, uh, a fellow called Manasseh, who was the brother of the high priest in Jerusalem, uh, was uh, poached by the Samaritans to come over and uh, take up as the new, uh, the new um, high priest in Samaria. So you can imagine this sort of thing. You can see this hate sort of thing happens today too. And you know the sort of um, feelings that this generates when these sort of things happen, particularly when you poach someone else and bring them over and say, well, now we've got one too. We've got a high priest and we've got a temple. You know, ours is better than yours sort of thing. That, that really engenders a really great sense of resentment and hatred. And this indeed went on for years and years, hundreds of years, right up to the time of when Jesus started his ministry. And hence... When he gave the, uh, the, the parable of the Good Samaritan, people there who were listening knew exactly what he meant. He didn't have to explain it to them. Now, what went wrong with Samaria and Judah, of course, is that they failed to heed God's word and keep his commandments. Um, there's a, anyone here been into the, the great synagogue in Castle Ray Street? Uh, you can do a tour of it. No? No? Yeah, You've been there? Yeah. It's a great, it's a great tour, actually. Isn't it? I, I, I loved it. It's, um, it's good for anyone who's interested in just Sydney or history or architecture or, or, if you're interested in Judaism or our Jewish sort of, um, uh, heritage, uh, go and have a look at the, the great synagogue in Castle Ray Street. They do a tour of it. Now, when you're lined up there, all the, the, uh, the, 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 tourists who are going in to have a look, which are always, um, Gentiles, of course, uh, or as the, the Jews call us Goyim, which means Gentile. Um, we're lined up there before to go in. And the, the guide always takes great delight in asking us the question, how many commandments did God give us? And, of course, all the uh, the Gentiles, well, particularly the older ones, say, oh, ten, ten. We all know that, of course. Uh, and then the guide has great delight in saying, no, 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 you're wrong there. There's actually 613 commandments that God gave us. Now, that's, that's the Jewish belief. And of course, um, what they're talking about there is all the things that relate to, you know, uh, dietary laws and getting baby boys circumcised and all those things, all those customary things that are, you know, applied to the old Jewish nation. And, um, so, and they, they think they're going over us. But what, whether there's 10 commandments or 613, doesn't really matter. For God, fairly graciously, He gave us, did He not, who we saw in, Deuteronomy, uh, chapter 6 gave us a summary of the commandments, gave us a summary, and indeed uh, uh, we can look at that now and just say that um, if you remember it says if you it's in page one hundred seventy eight on the Black Bibles, if you want to just follow along. Here old is here, O Israel, the the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love your Lord love your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts, to impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit down at home and when you walk along the road. When you lie down and when you get up, tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. So here there's a summary of all the commandments that God has given us. And he he says here that we are to love God with all uh, all our body, all our being not just not just an intellectual thing not just a, an emotional thing but it's with all our being we're also to make sure that we pass them on to our children, pass them on to the children the, the generation below us uh, and we're also to make it part of our lives, it says here talk about them when you sit down at home talk about them when you walk along the road talk about them when you lie down, when you get up. So you imagine he's saying he will talk about them just as a, a regular thing, just how you talk about who won the football on the, uh, the Saturday just gone. Um, he's saying, well, how about talking about the, uh, the commandments of God, the law of God? How about talking about that? And, of course, there's a promise here. God also gives us a promise in, in Deuteronomy 6. He gives us a promise as well. He gave them a promise and it applies to us that uh, that if you do this, the Lord will bring you into a land um, with large, flourishing cities you did not build, houses filled with all kinds of good things you did not provide, wells you did not dig, and vineyards and olive groves you did not plant. Now, of course, he's talking here to the the people who are uh, who've fled Egypt and are about to go into the the, the new promised land um, and take it over. But this applies to us as well. That God will provide for us. That's the point. God will provide for us doesn't literally mean for us here now that he's going to send, send me out and put me into a house that I didn't build. Um, well, actually, it would be nice if it did happen that way. I'd get, well, particularly if you got to choose the house. But um, but that's not going to happen. But he will provide for me. He'll provide everything that I need, and that's, that's the promise that God gives if you uh, have your heart and your soul and your strength uh, dedicated to the law of the Lord. Now, this brings us up to the time now of the ministry of Jesus. And he tells his audience the parable of the Good Samaritan. Note that the parable is prefaced by something, and if you, you can't really separate it from the rest, because if you do, it, um, it takes away from its, its deeper meaning. Because remember, it's one of these um, lawyers or experts in the law. He actually asks a question. I remember that these people, uh, these experts in the law, were uh, going around baiting Jesus all the way through uh, his ministry. They used to hang around with him, go along with the crowds, listen to what he had to say, but they'd have uh, some smart elegance, a bit like we have Q&A on today's television, ABC, if anyone ever watches that, similar sort of deal. they have get a, a conservative speaker up there to sit and they have a whole lot of people in the audience ready to bait them with questions. That's what these guys used to do uh, back then to Jesus. And uh, he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, that, that, that's pretty good. That's one of the, the best questions that anyone can ask in their life. What must I do to, in, to inherit eternal life? And Jesus replies, what is, what is written in the law? How do you read it? See, very—I don't know if you ever noticed—Jesus uses a very good tactic in dealing with people who uh, challenge him and ask questions. He always hits the ball back into their side, of their court. You ever noticed? He—that's he, a good tactic for us too, for anyone really. Hit it back to them and get them to speak out what they actually think first, and then you can um, uh, you can re- respond to that. So this bloke answers very correctly. He says. He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind. And he adds another one here too. And love your neighbour as yourself. Well, Jesus answers, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. That's a big statement. Do do this and you will live. Um, He really means there, you will have eternal life. Remember, he's he's, he's speaking in response to this fellow's question about what, what must I do to have eternal life. He's saying, if you do this, you will have eternal life. So, if you can love the Lord your God with all, all of your, all of your being and love your neighbor as yourself, you will have eternal life. But this fellow wasn't satisfied with that because he wanted to justify himself. It says here, justify himself, or he wanted to, um, he wanted to, uh, make it feel, uh, make himself feel better, uh, still to get, perhaps get at Jesus. And he says, well, yeah, but that's all very well, but who is my neighbour? So he thought there might be a bit of a, a way out there for him. Because if, if, for instance, um, if you think that your neighbour is just those people who you like or those people who uh, are like you um, or those people are the same ethnic group as you or the same family as you, and that's still common that common throughout the whole world, in some parts of the world, of course, they that ethnic or family, that family thing is very, very strong, uh, even in so-called modern countries uh, modern industrialised countries the family uh, unit is more important than the nation uh, so there's there's a whole range of different uh, affiliations that humans have still to this day where where there's a tendency to see that group as just only they are your neighbours to, to whom you have a duty of care but um, anyway he said but who's my, who is my neighbour and he was probably thinking well it's it's my neighbour, surely just the Jews. In fact, he might have been thinking, perhaps my neighbour is just people like me, uh, teachers of the law, uh, the, the Levites and the, the, the priests. Uh, and this bloke indeed would have probably, he might have been a Levite. He was very, very much probably a Pharisee, which is part of that ruling group in Jerusalem at the time who were uh, very much um, into the uh, letter of the law. Um, and we're always, uh, tra- traipsing after Jesus and, and trying to bait him. Uh, and he, should, he certainly would have been aware of the history, uh, and the beliefs and practice of the of Samaritans as well. And he would have despised them for that. Uh, but the lawyer, um, would have seen immediately that Jesus was actually comparing those with him, with, with whom he identified most. The Levites and the priests. That's how this fellow would have been identifying with in that story Jesus was actually uh, giving an unfavorable comparison uh, to them with and with regards to the Samaritan the Samaritan of course was seen as the hero of the story and of course he, he the the lawyer here attempted to absolve himself uh, of guilt by asking who's my neighbor Uh and Jesus, of course, answered, well, uh, well, sorry, he got, Jesus didn't actually answer. He got the man himself to answer with his own words and through his own reasoning. It uh, was, was almost impossible for him to answer otherwise, given the story that Jesus gave. He said, well, the neighbour, of course, would have to be the one who showed the other one mercy. So these two summaries, we're seeing here two summaries of all the commandments of God. One, loving the Lord with all your being, and the second, loving your neighbour as yourself. They're forever now, I think, put together in our consciousness and understanding, for you cannot love God and hate your neighbour, and that includes even those who are your enemies, or even the, you know, the obnoxious or coarse people that you, you come up against, or the boorish or loud people and the destructive people. Uh, the bears that chase little eggs out of the park. Uh, or the um, people who can't parallel park or can't merge properly. You know, all those people. Well, uh, the people who defame you and bully you. Now you come across those too. It's not just the children who get bullied. Um, a lot of people get bullied all their life. And you'll find it in workplaces. So the, 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 the neighbours uh, are also those people as well. We can't pick and choose. So we have to, knowing that our neighbours are all people who we come in contact with, we then have to actually examine carefully what it is to love them. What it is to love our neighbour. The Greek word, Greek word actually used in this uh, passage and uh, in other places in the Bible too, uh, for love, and the Greeks had a whole lot of uh, words for love, uh, love in different circumstances. But the word used here is the Greek word agape, which I'm sure a lot of you have heard um it used to be very popular for uh, christian uh, rock bands to call themselves agape and things like that back in you know about 30 years ago i, m- I remember but agape is uh, a particular type of love and it's a love that we it's not the sort of love that you would have for a spouse for instance or love that you'd have for a family member or even a close friend it's the love that you would have in general thought uh, certainly for people in general and for things in general and there was a notion in Word of Agape that it was love for something that had great, great value. And, of course, there is no, thi- no thing on earth that has greater value than those creatures uh, who, like us, are created in the image of God and for whom God's only son gave up his life as a sacrifice for their sins. They're the, they're the things on this earth that had the greatest value. There's a lot of people these days will try to tell you, there's a lot of propaganda going around now that say that that is not the case, that all creatures have equal value. Uh, Certainly not, that's not the biblical story. The biblical story is that humans, whatever their disposition, whatever their station in life, whatever their nationality, are all equally created in the image of God, and they have equal value. And therefore, our uh, duty of care to them, in the biblical sense, is to all of them equally agape though is not associated so much with the emotions as are the other forms of love or some other forms of love um and a lot of us have been through the love of um a uh, a member for a member of the opposite sex who hopefully will eventually come to marry and uh we know that there's a lot of emotions involved in that and uh there's a really um unless you uh, you know uh, if you've been married you understand that there's a, a a drawing together of your lives, which is, uh, is, is really sublime. It's, uh, hard to explain and express, but it's really something that even stirs up your emotions, even when you're married for 30 years and, um, you're getting old and, uh, it's not so much, uh, you bringing, uh, bunches of roses or going out for dinner anymore, but the feeling there, the emotional feeling is so very strong when you just consider the delight this other person has, is, has brought you into your life. And, you know, that's, um, that's a very emotional thing as well. But this agape is not so much emotional, but it's very much based on our conscience, uh, our sense of what's right or wrong, our, our moral consciousness, if you like, that God is, is written within our hearts. And it's also based on the will that is our desire to do something. And that is, and our ability to do something. Uh, so it's, uh, it's very hard to necessarily like your neighbour, necessarily to like your neighbour, particularly when they let their dogs bark continually all day long. But yeah, but um or I'll just, I just I said that because I just suddenly thought of my neighbour, one of my neighbours, and uh, but I'll let you fill in the blanks there. I'm sure you can come up with other sorts of neighbours who are very very hard to feel good about. But then again, fortunately in Agape we're not. We're not asked to have an emotional response to them. We're asked to have a doing response, an action response to people. So it's important here this, notice we don't know about the Samaritan whether he changed his opinion of Jews or not, and after the event, you know, and he come back, say if we, the story went on and we, we saw him come back to see how this Jew got on. Would the Jews perhaps sort of change his? attitudes towards Samaritans and, and greet him. Well he might do, we don't know, but but then again he might not. We we, we know all know enough about human behaviour now to be are not too surprised if the Jew hated hated Samaritans just as much as he ever did, and vice versa too, the Samaritans disliking the Jews. Um, and it's uh, we don't know that, but that's probably you know doesn't really matter because the Samaritan though did what was right by the injured Jew. Whether or not he felt uh, well of him or not, whether or not he had a, a respect for him or whether or not he uh, uh, had any emotion towards him. He did what was right towards the injured Jew. So in Deuteronomy uh, 6, uh, tells us, Love the Lord, your God, with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. Um, and here we see that God is not just talking about emotional things, not even necessarily so. There might be emotion in, in, in that as well, in that love of God. But the thing is that he's asking us for all the resources of our entire being, intellect, our will, our desires, our aspirations, our thoughts, our words, our words as well, because it talks about, you know, doesn't it, talking about these things to your children, talking about them when you're walking along the road, when you're at work, so on. Uh, so he's asking us to bring all of our Um, resources of our being uh, to to loving him. And also, um, it's good to see here, I think, that this commandment, this one from Deuteronomy, cannot be separated from what we're presented with uh, a thousand years later in the the parable of the Good Samaritan, that we must love our neighbours as ourselves. You cannot love God and hate your neighbour. The Interesting here in the... uh, In the Deuteronomy 6, it goes on to say there, does it not tie them, that is these commandments, tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads and nail them to the the doors of your houses. Well, um, uh, those things are done by some uh, particular sects of uh, Jews these days. And you go down to Bondi and you'll see them there. Uh, They usually have long hair, big black hats, uh, black clothes, and you'll see that they also have a little leather box tied around their, their forehead, and they'll have a whole lot of leather thongs tied up their, their arms. And in those those leather devices, they have the words of Deuteronomy 6 written down. They take that very literally. Uh, Deuteronomy 6 is written down on a little piece of paper and put in those leather leather uh, devices and, and actually carried on their foreheads and on their, their arms. Um, look... You can do that. We could do that if we wanted to, too. It's not necessarily going to help you, though, to live the life that Jesus is 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 asking you to do. Uh, but you know, it's interesting. I've seen a great change over um, the last, I say, 20 to 30 years in workplaces in this country. It's a um, my wife and I often discuss this because we both both noticed it, and it's what we call come to call. Um, Corporate managerialism swept over every station of life, every every workplace. And part of this New Deal of this uh, new corporate managerial sort of regime within workplaces is uh, the idea of everyone writing down every organisation, corporation writing down a list of their uh, values and their uh, their uh, uh, their aims and uh, and uh, how they wish to treat people. And of course they put them in, in, uh, in a frame and put it up on the wall of their office. Everyone, everyone's seen these things? I'm sure you have. Uh, and so you have the, uh, the, 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 what's called the, uh, the vision and, uh, the, the statement of, uh, uh, values and so on up on the wall. And of course, in a lot of places, these become a bit of a joke because, you know, it's no good having these things stuck up on the wall unless you actually, the corporation and the people in it, actually live these uh, values out in practice. In fact, those things become quite uh, a thing of derision, and uh, actually makes the corporation look worse because they see you as just being hypocrites. Uh, it's important that we not worry about too much about putting, you know, tying these this passage from Deuteronomy up or the Good Samaritan up on our our foreheads in a piece of leather or around our, our wrists. But of course, what we have to do, and this is what Jesus maintains all through his ministry is that we have to live the gospel. It's no good just speaking the gospel, but we have to live it. And, of course, um, if we wish to live according to that first commandment summary, to love the, the Lord with all of our being, then we also have to live it according to the second as well. And I just pray that the Lord will give us the ability to do so. Will you just join me in prayer, please? Almighty God, thank you for the word that you've given us today and, Lord, I pray that you would help us, Lord, to assimilate this into our our thinking and our being and see, Lord God, that um, your commandments uh, demand not just an acceptance and and an emotional or intellectual response, but they demand, Lord, action on our parts in the way we live and particularly, Lord, the way that we react towards other people, the way we interact with other people, the way we treat other people. Lord, whether they're our friends or our enemies, Lord, help us all, I pray, to have the heart of Jesus and the way he showed us in dealing with people who are can often be very difficult and even uh, opposed to you. Uh, Lord, help us to be like him and love our neighbour as ourselves. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.